Good morning. I want to begin with some words from the book of First Samuel, but since they're so very familiar to you all, there's no need to turn to them. They are the words of our Lord himself, given through an unknown prophet to the high priest Eli, and this is how they read First Samuel 2, verse 30, those who honour me, I will honour. I take these words for our starting point because they very helpfully introduce us to the man who is before us in this address, athlete and missionary, Eric Liddell. He is remembered, says an old friend and fellow athlete who's writing this years later. He is remembered as the man who would not run on Sunday. And though the story was one that had by no means been forgotten when these words were written around 1970, the story has of course become much more widely known since the movie Chariots of Fire was made a decade later. Well, let's hear it again. It's 1924. In just a few months, the city of Paris, France, is going to host the 1924 Olympic Games. And if there was one prize coveted more than any other, it was the gold medal in the 100 metre sprint. It has been described as the jewel of the Games. And not only did Eric Liddell want to win there was a very good chance that he would do so. He was the fastest man in Britain at the time, one of the fastest men in the world. The year before at Stamford Bridge in London, he had set a British record over 100 yards that would remain unbroken for 35 years. And then the news came out. The preliminary heats for the 100 metres would be run on a Sunday and very quietly without any fuss he simply said I'm not running on a Sunday and he stuck to that what's not so well known is that he also refused to run both in the Olympic 100 metre relay and the 400 metre relay and for the very same reason heats were on a Sunday But it was the decision not to go in for the 100 metre sprint that sent shockwaves through the country. It was a golden opportunity to win the coveted gold both for his native Scotland and for Great Britain and in people's eyes he had simply thrown it away. And cruelly and hurtfully some people called him a traitor to his country. The Olympic gold, however, or an Olympic gold, was nevertheless destined to be his, and remarkably over a distance for which he had never seriously trained, namely the quarter mile or 400 metres, this is the difference of a couple of metres between them. 
Eric always said, this is his wife Florence, Eric always said that the great thing for him was that when he stood by his principles and refused to run in the 100 metres, he found that the 400 metres was really his race. He said he would never have known that otherwise. He would never have dreamed of trying the 400 metres at the Olympics. But he did. He was asked by the British athletic authorities to train for the 400 metres. And the upshot of it was, as you know, on the day of the final, he not only took the gold, but set a new world record. Now, it's in connection with that victory that we come across our text, 1 Samuel 2, verse 30. That's the hotel in Paris where he was staying. Eric was handed a note by one of the masseurs. This was on the morning of the 400 metres final. Eric promised to read it when he got to the stadium. And this is what was written. In the old book it says, He that honours me, I will honour. Wishing you the best of success. Always. It's difficult to think of a more appropriate text. Eric Liddell was deeply committed to the Lord's Day as a day not for athletics, but for rest and Christian worship. For him, honouring the Lord on his holy day meant not running. And he didn't run, even though the prize was an Olympic gold, so it cost him. It cost him the gold. He would have loved to have won that 100 metre sprint for himself. He would certainly have loved to win it for his country. But he couldn't pursue it when it meant dishonouring the Lord on his holy day. And it brought him, as we heard, painful criticism. But he wasn't the loser. It is doubtful, says his friend, a biographer, D.P. Thompson, if any Olympic event has been described and discussed so often, alike in the press and in the literature of athletics, as that 400 metre world record setting win. And that was before the movie Chariots of Fire brought his victory to the vast audience that it has done. The drama of it, however, and it was an astonishing race, the drama of it and the gold and the world record and the athletic fame were, however, the least of it as far as God's honouring of this man was concerned. And I say that because Eric Liddell's heart was set principally on evangelism and foreign missions. Those were the deepest burden of his heart. And it is in relation to those things that God's honouring of him for his faithfulness is most clearly to be seen. For as he gave himself to these things, evangelism and mission, first of all in his own country and then in China, his prowess as an athlete 
and his integrity as a Christian combined to give him untold influence for good. Especially over young men. So yes, it was costly for him to stand as he did for the Lord's day. But he wasn't the loser. And the kingdom of God was not the loser. It was the gainer. Because it helped to make him the outstanding witness for Christ that he was to become. Well, we've jumped in at the middle. It's time to go back to the start of it all. Eric Liddell was born in China uh, on the 16th of January 1902. His father, the Reverend James Liddell, was from Stirlingshire in Scotland. He was a missionary with the London Missionary Society, and I may use the abbreviation LMS in the course of this address, the London Missionary Society. He had gone out in 1898, and it wasn't until 1907, after nine years of service, that he came home for his first furlough. So Eric's earliest memories were of China. It was to China that he was to return in 1925, and it was in China too, 20 years later, at the early age of 43, that he was to die whilst a prisoner in a Japanese internment camp. The London Missionary Society had a school in the London, England, from which the society takes its name. And when his parents returned to China in 1908, after their furlough, Eric was left behind. Students and border in this LMS school. So to his older brother, Rob. He had, as one of his... Uh, School matters, schoolmasters was later to recall shyness, quietness. Physically, he's described as being rather weedy. His parents, not surprisingly, greatly missed. He sheltered as far as possible under his brother's protection. After two or three years, however, this writer tells us, his physique improved rapidly. Our headmaster believed in plenty of fresh air. And two terms of hard rugger per year, and now rugger is just a posh English word for rugby. Two, year, two terms of hard rugger per year with often three or even four games per week made of Eric a new man. He is described as academically competent, not brilliant, but he was great at sports. He once said to his sister, I don't think much of lessons, but I can run. <laughs> and it wasn't long before he and his brother Rob, who was also a fine athlete, were dividing the honours between them at the annual school sports day. When he was a little boy in China, Eric was seriously ill for a while, and when he began to recover and walk about, he was so stiff, in his legs that one lady was overheard to say that boy will never be able to run again but he would be and all through school there was a steady development of his athletic abilities Eric remained at the missionary school in London until he finished his high school this was the spring of 1920 he's now aged 18 
And in the fall of that year, he began a four-year course in pure science at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And it was at Edinburgh University that his sports career really took off, both as a runner and as a rugby player. Eric loved rugby. And by the time he retired from it in 1923 to concentrate on his running, he had played no fewer than seven times for the Scottish national team. And only one of these games ended in defeat. And if you know anything of Scotland's uh, rugby records, you will understand what a remarkable feat (laughs) that was. He was a brave tackler, and of course he was fast. John Keddy, in his book Running the Race, says it was apparent early on that a star of the first magnitude had arisen on the rugby field in Scotland. One sports correspondent commenting on his early matches speaks of the almost uncanny intuition for being in the right place at the right time. It was as a runner, however, that he reached his full sporting potential. In 1921, he joined the Edinburgh University Athletic Club and was soon running races and winning races all over the place, especially over 100 and 220 yard distances. Among the winnings from that first 1921-22 season, this will just give you a little glimpse of days gone by and the kind of things that athletes won in those days. Among the winnings from that first 1921-22 season, says one of his biographers, were, not counting all the cups, a silver rose bowl, a cheese and biscuit dish, a three-tier cake stand, a large clock, a silver tea set on a tray, a kettle. Do you all know what a kettle is? It's great for boiling water. Every American home should have one. Fish servers, silver brushes and combs, six tea knives, fish knives and forks, another six tea knives, a flower vase, a leather suitcase, a travelling clock, a silver entree dish, a case of cutlery, and loads and loads of watches. And of course, in addition, because of all these victories, it gave widespread publicity to his name. It really made Eric Little a household name. It's time, however, to talk about Eric Little as a Christian. His close friend, D.P. Thompson, who spent his whole adult life as an evangelist, and I will be quoting a number of times from D.P. Thompson, so let me just say in parenthesis a word or two about D.P. Thompson. He was just a few years Eric Little's junior. This is the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. D.P. Thompson was one of three brothers and four cousins who went to the war and the only one to come back alive. And he sensed a special providence of God in having spared him and by the grace of God gave his life to evangelism in Scotland particularly. He was Eric's friend. 
and a great influence upon him. D.P. Thompson believes that long before these heady days of the early 1920s, Eric Little had a faith in Christ at once simple and strong. To his own great impoverishment, however, as well as to that of others, he had been until then a secret disciple. Of his influence for good, there could be no question. It was acknowledged on every hand. But he had never disclosed its secret and had never openly confessed his Lord. All of that, however, was to change in the spring of 1923. A year before this, a number of young men had founded the GSEU, the Glasgow Students' Evangelistic Union. In teams of about a dozen, they would go to places where local churches were prepared to give them a united invitation, and there they would conduct a mission. And in the spring of 1923, there was a team of students who went to a town by the name of Armadale in West Lothian near Edinburgh to do a two-week mission. And during the mission, and the mission was going well, a decision was taken to hold a special meeting for men only in the town hall and to invite as a guest speaker, if he would come, Eric Little, already, says Thompson, the best known and most popular athlete in Scotland. But would he come? Well, it was agreed that Thompson should be the one to go and ask. And he did. And after a few minutes silence, Eric's answer was, all right, I'll come. And that was a watershed. How often, Thompson writes, in succeeding months and years, Eric was to refer to that moment as a turning point in his life. It was the beginning of a life of dedicated service to the work of the gospel that only death would end. One month later, this is a diary entry from 28th of May, Thompson writes a very cheery letter from Eric Liddell this morning. He says, He is a changed man since that day I asked him to speak at Armadale, that a new joy has come into his life. Thompson goes on to tell us that there were some who said, and very many who feared, that Eric's participation in evangelistic work might have an adverse effect on his running. It had exactly the opposite effect. In the three months immediately following his open confession of Christ and his emergence as an evangelist, Eric ran more brilliantly and achieved greater distinction as a sprinter than in all the years that had gone before. The following year, 1924, was the year of Liddell's Olympic triumph. We touched on that in the introduction. It was also the year of his graduation from Edinburgh University. What then? Well, for the short term, for one year, he gave himself to evangelistic work with D.P. Thompson. In theatres, music halls, churches and public auditoriums of all kinds, in schools and colleges, and on one occasion, at least in a pub on a Sunday morning, they reached audiences not readily accessible 
to any other type of evangelist. And the result? Young men and boys in particular were led in larger numbers of cases, I am persuaded, than either of us were ever likely to know of to invest their lives in the service of the Lord and Master, Eric set forth so winsomely. There was something else that Eric was doing during that year, 1924-25. He was attending classes at the Scottish Congregational College in Edinburgh. For a long time, his heart had been set on going back to China to engage in missionary work. And these classes at the Congregational College would give him, he thought, additional qualification for that work that he hoped to do. Seven years later, during a furlough, which stretched over the academic year 1931-32, he was to engage in further theological study there and be ordained at the end of it to the gospel ministry. So what was he going to be doing in China? The London Missionary Society had a school in Tientsin. It was called the Anglo-Chinese College. It was the leading British school in North China and was known among the Chinese as the Hall of New Learning. It was opened in 1902, just a few days after Eric's birth. And over the years, the enrolment grew to 500 boys. A very large proportion of these boys were from non-Christian homes. All of them were from upper and, well, middle to upper social classes of Chinese families. It had been, says John Keddy, the brainchild of educational missionary Dr. Samuel Lavington Hart, who had founded the college. He had done so with the purpose of taking the gospel to the sons of Chinese businessmen and government officials. His thinking was that if the future leaders were taught about Christian things, national life might eventually be influenced for the Christian faith. Well, it was to join the staff of this college that Little left Scotland in the early summer of 1925. He would be teaching the boys science. Not surprisingly, he would be supervising their outdoor games and athletics. And he would also be involved significantly in teaching them the Bible. He was given the most memorable of farewells. The valedictory services which were held Uh, in both Glasgow and in Edinburgh were overwhelming in terms of the numbers in attendance from the one in Glasgow. Nearly a thousand people were turned away. No valedictory meeting like it had ever been seen in Scotland before, says Thompson. That night, I am convinced, many got their call to missionary service overseas. On the night that he left Edinburgh, he was taken in a carriage drawn by a team of students to the Waverley train station. The crowds in the centre of the city were so dense that the traffic ground to a halt. In the station itself, as the train got ready and finally pulled out, 
vast crowd sang out some of the great missionary hymns of our faith. Jesus shall reign where the sun. Edinburgh says one who was there has never seen anything quite like it since. The China to which Liddell returned in 1925 had long been a troubled place and it would soon get worse and that in turn would profoundly impact Eric's own life, his family life and his missionary work. But before we touch on that aspect of things, the China situation, there are a couple of other things that I want us to glance at. He's now in China. What about his years as a teacher? He was to remain in the Anglo-Chinese College for 12 years, 1925 through 37. He never felt at his best in formal teaching, but he did feel at home instructing the boys in athletics and in teaching them the Word of God. And he had plenty of opportunities for teaching them the Word of God. Every morning, for example, there was a service of worship for 20-25 minutes conducted by the members of the British staff. There were only a few of them. Most of the staff were Chinese. Here was an opportunity. It came around once a week for him to speak on the scripture of the day to all these hundreds of boys. Eric furthermore had in common with all of the teachers what were known as Bible circles. These were entirely voluntary Bible classes conducted by the tutors took place outside the school hours. His was well attended. And in addition he also had more Casual opportunities when boys would seek him out for personal talks. And it's very encouraging, and I mention this especially for any of you here involved in Christian schooling, as we are ourselves in Grace Baptist, just to learn how much fruit this bore. Between the years 1922 and 1935, covering the larger part of Eric's term of service of the college, no fewer than 158 boys were welcomed into the fellowship of the Church of Christ on profession of Christian faith. Many of them, very many of them, from non-Christian homes. And then there were athletics, both in connection with the school and further of a field there were fresh opportunities for Eric Little to run. Time allows for only one story. I'm sure some of you know this story. September 1928, Eric is in a place called Byron in Manchuria. The Japanese and French Olympic teams were there, he writes, and it happened somehow that I won the 200 and 400 metre races. Then he goes on to tell us what happened after the 400 metres. My race was just half an hour before the boat. I tried to have the boat held, but failed. It was 20 minutes by taxi from the racetrack to the boat. I ran the race and was starting to beat it to the taxi when something happened. You never guess what. The band struck up God Save the King which of course is our British 
national anthem. So, of course, I had to stand still as a post till they got through. <laughs> then, of course, I was just about to leg it for the taxi. But what do you think happened then? Well, you'd hardly believe it. But the fellow who came in second to me was a Frenchman. So, of course, they had to start the Marseillaise. And there I was, tied like a post again. The taxi made it in great time. I took a healthy hop, step and leap and was on the edge of the wharf before it stopped. The boat was steadily moving out, too far to jump. But a bit of a tidal wave threw it back a little. He says, I flung my bags onto the boat and jumped and says, I remember, I tried to remember in the very act how a gazelle jumps. <laughs> he says, I felt like one and I made it. Just made it. And although he played it down, someone who was there reckoned that it was about 15 feet or 15 foot jump. But he made it. So there were opportunities even in China for him to run. In 1937, everything changed for Eric. His 12 years as a teacher at the Anglo-Chinese College came to an end. And instead he found himself working as an itinerant evangelist in a place called Sao Chang. The decision to make the change wasn't easy. An opinion amongst his friends was very divided on the question. It was a big step, writes his wife Florence, involving many changes. And it took him a long time to be sure he was doing the right thing. How after, after much prayerful consideration of all the points involved, he felt God was calling him to the country. And I think it was quite obvious he did the right thing. He loved the work, his health improved, and I think he blossomed out in a new way. So where was it that he went? Sao Chang was a small village in the heart of the great North China Plain. At that time, it was the centre of a wide field of Christian evangelism under the LMS. And the field was wide. The district was the size of Wales in the United Kingdom, which in turn means it was about the size of New Jersey here in the United States. It was where his father, the Reverend James Little, had worked before, and it was densely populated. Between Sao Chang and the neighbouring district, where there was also a London Missionary Society station, it is estimated that there were about 10,000 villages with a total population of 10 million people. It was an agricultural area, wheat and millet, the principal crops, and we are told every inch of ground was cultivated. Eric's job? It was to cover this wide area as an itinerant, evangelism, itinerant evangelist, visiting churches, preaching, advising the Chinese pastors, sharing the lives of the people he visited, answering their questions, dealing with their problems. And of course it involved lots and lots of miles, either on foot or by bicycle. There were two things that made it very challenging work right from the outset. 
The first was that he had to leave his wife Florence and their two children back at Mission Headquarters in Tientsin. Eric had married Florence Mackenzie in the March of 1934. She was from a Canadian missionary family. It was quite a few years younger than he was. By the time Eric started his work as an itinerant evangelist, they had two young daughters. And the LMS felt that it would be safer for Florence and the girls to stay behind in Tientsin. Which brings me to the second thing that made his work so very challenging from the outset, and it was alluded to earlier, and that is the turmoil that China was in at this period. Just a few months before Eric's arrival at the Chang Mission, Japan had launched a full-scale invasion of China. Now, the country had been in a mess before this. Various Chinese factions had been at war with each other. Japan had been steadily encroaching on Chinese territory. But now, the Japanese were here in force. And all over the district to which Eric was assigned, there was fighting. It was a highly dangerous place to be. And amongst the people, there was great suffering and much loss of life. Not surprisingly, it was thought by the LMS that Florence and the girls should stay behind in Tientsin. And that in turn meant that Eric was able to see very little of them. This mission work continued in Sao Chang until early 1941, when the missionaries were evacuated back to the LMS headquarters in Tientsin. But then things became dangerous there too. So much so that in the May of that year, 1941, Florence Little and the two children set sail for Canada. Eric felt very much that he ought to stay behind. All of the male missionaries felt the same. But with fears for Florence's safety, and she was expecting another baby at the time, the difficult decision was taken that she should leave. Sadly, they were never to see each other again. In 1943, Eric and his missionary colleagues were taken from Tientsin to a Japanese internment camp for civilians in Weixing, which is to the south of Beijing. And there, two years later, 25th of February, 1945, Eric died from a brain tumour. He was only 43 years old. His third child, born in Canada, he never saw. I will always thank God, says his wife, Florence. I had the rare privilege of being Eric's wife. I think we had more fun and happiness in our 11 years together than lots of couples have in a whole lifetime of married life. He was a perfectly grand husband and so sweet with the children. Now, of course, you would expect a wife to say nice things about her late husband, wouldn't you? But one of the striking and humbling things about Eric Little was how universally he was loved. 
No one had a bad word to say about him. In fact, Sally Magnuson, who wrote a biography after the Chariots of Fire movie came out, a lot of people are still alive who knew Eric Little. In all her research, the only person that she could come across who said anything bad about him was some correspondent in a local newspaper who took great offence at what Eric had said at a temperance meeting against drinking. This man was a moderate drinker and he thought that Eric was far too hard. Tribute after tribute paid to him. Scotland, it's 20 years since he had left for mission work. But the news of his death was greeted with great sadness all across the nation. Tribute after tribute poured in. And though, as you would expect, much was said about his astonishing powers as a runner, it's his Christian character about which so much was said. Fellow athletes, fellow missionaries, fellow internees in the Japanese camp all spoke so warmly of Eric as a person. He was ever the gentleman, thoughtful, considerate, kind. You read the biographies, and there are a number of them, and you come across story after story. How he would shake hands with competitors before the race and wish them well. How he would offer them the use of his trowel to dig holes for starting, these were the days before, starting blocks for a race. How on one occasion he made a point of speaking to a black runner whom everyone else was ignoring. How on another occasion with another runner who was sitting shivering in the cold, he gave him his jacket, these were the days before cosy warm tracksuits. It was the same at the end. During the worst period of his imprisonment, he was, says one, through his courage and cheerfulness, a tower of strength and sanity to his fellow prisoners. To many sufferers, he brought the only comfort that captivity allowed. Another internee writes his genial, winsome disposition and his readiness to help anyone attracted both young and old. From this humble and modest demeanour, no one would have guessed that here was a man with an international reputation on the running track. Yet another speaks of him as overflowing with good humour and love of life. Now obviously there was a foundation to all of this in nature, in the personality that God had given him, in what he was as a fruit of common grace. But it's what it was, what he was by special grace that takes us to the heart of the secret. Speaking at his funeral, one of the senior missionaries, the Reverend Arnold Bryson, said this. Yesterday, a man said to me, of all the men I have known, Eric Liddell was the one in whose character and life, the spirit of Jesus Christ was preeminently manifested. And all of us, says Bryson, who were privileged to know him with any intimacy, echo this judgment. This is what he goes on to ask. Or this is, you know, this is what he goes on to ask. What was the secret of his consecrated life and far-reaching influence? And his answer 
absolute surrender to God's will as revealed in Jesus Christ. His was a God-controlled life. And to follow his Master and Lord with a devotion that never flagged and with an intensity of purpose, that was what made him the man that he was in whom the power and truth the reality of true religion shone. Absolute surrender. Amongst his own final words, here's Annie Buchan, matron of the Mission Hospital in Sao Chang. She was with Eric as he lay dying in hospital in the internment camp. Annie, he said, it's complete surrender. He didn't want to die. He was only 43. He wanted to be free and return to Canada and be reunited with his wife and his children and to do missionary work. But when it became clear to him that there was not going to be a recovery, that this was the end, this was his attitude, it's complete surrender. Not my will, but thine be done. It was the secret of his stand for the Lord's day, this devotedness to God and his will. Eric Little loved to win. Someone, and this was in China, commented how frequently he looked as if he was going to lose a race and then suddenly there would be a burst of speed and he would leave everyone behind him. And it was true. Eric Liddell was a slow starter. There was an occasion in 1923 in Hamden in Glasgow when he was running last in a 440 metre uh, relay race. He was the last to run. He was in the last lap. He was 40 yards behind the man in front. And someone in the stand commented to someone else, he's not going to make it. To which the laconic reply was, his head's no back yet. His head is not back yet. (laughs) To give you a translation. (laughs) And sure enough at that moment, back went his head and he burst into a sprint that took him from 40 yards behind to win with 20 yards to spare. When Ian Charleston was doing the part for the movie Chariots of Fire, he said it was the hardest thing to learn how to run with his head back. It was a terrible running size. I couldn't see where I was going. (laughs) Eric said I always knew where I was going. Well, here he was. uh, this This is China. Someone asking, uh, what was the secret of, of him winning the race in these circumstances? And, and I think they expected him to say, well, he would pray in his heart or call upon the Lord or say something suitably pious. And this friend who overheard it said, he smiled that quiet smile of his. I can picture him now. And he said, the fact is, I don't like to be beaten. <laughs> There was an occasion when uh, he and his friends were out jogging. They were jogging up a hill. It was a corporation bus 
running past, tooted its horn, challenged them. Eric Little took on the bus to the top of the hill and beat it. (laughs) And when his colleagues caught up with him, why did you do that? He says, I don't like to be beaten. (laughs) So he was wonderfully human. He loved to run, he loved to win, but what counted most was doing the will of God. And if that meant forfeiting an Olympic gold, so be it. And then, and with this I close, how this commitment was sustained. How do we sustain amidst the temptations we face to compromise, whether on the Lord's day or anything else, and allow the world to squeeze us into its mould? How do we resist? Once I asked him, said another internee, but I really knew the answer, for my husband was in his dormitory and shared the secret with him. Every morning, about 6am, with curtain tightly drawn to keep in the shining of our peanut oil lamp, lest the prowling sentries would think someone was trying to escape, he used to climb out of his top bunk, past the sleeping form of his dormitory mates. And there, on a small Chinese table, the two men would sit close together with light enough just to illumine their Bibles and notebooks. And silently they read, prayed, thought about the day's duties, what was to be done. And what people in the camp saw was the fruit of that that had continued all through his adult life, that depth of devotion to God. They saw it in the love and the obedience and the fragrance of a God-enfolded life. And brothers and sisters, if people are are to see the same in us, the secret is the same. Such a life that influences others, whether through our public ministries or our private engagements with people, can only be nurtured and sustained by the very same disciplines that we discern, not only in Eric Liddell, but in the Lord himself, the discipline of getting alone and spending time with God. I would like you to turn in your hymn books to hymn number 579. And we're going to sing Eric Liddell's favourite hymn and to the tune that he loved. Be still my soul to the tune Finlandia, Finlandia. It was sung at his memorial service in the camp just a few days after his death. And I'm going to ask Fred if he would come and lead us.